0: most powerfully in the old testament get the lesson that god takes slaves and makes them his own and that yahweh keeps his covenant he made a promise he keeps his word he promised abram what he would do and he does it
1: welcome to the word unleashed with tom pennington Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series with Part 2 of An Aerial View of the Old Testament. We're taking a bird's-eye view of the Hebrew Scriptures to better understand the timeless truths about who God is, what He has done, and how these historical accounts connect and relate to the New Testament. Today, Tom will examine the book of Exodus, an account full of fire, smoke, mountains, miraculous events, and the incredible sovereign work and faithfulness of Yahweh in His redemption and deliverance of His chosen people, Israel. Let's join our teacher right now as we learn more from God's Word here on The Word Unleashed.
0: Understand that in chapters 1 through 11, you had 2,000 years And in chapters 12 through 50, 290 years. There's a lot that God wants to say about his interaction with the patriarchs. God chooses one man and one family to whom he will bear a special relationship, and that is Abraham. We know nothing, by the way, about Abraham's first 75 years of life. And we know very little about his final 75 years of life. The greatest detail that we know about Abraham's life is from his 75th birthday to his 100th birthday, from his conversion until Isaac, the son of the promise, was born. So God comes to him and says, I want you to go forth from your country. Where did he come from? He came from Ur of the Chaldees. You remember your world history? Ur was located in Sumer, in Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia meaning the land between the rivers. It was composed, Sumer was, of 12 city-states, and Ur was the hub. It gave us, that great culture did, cuneiform, which was the earliest known form of writing. It was a highly cultured, cosmopolitan culture, and yet God tells Abram to leave. Why leave Ur? You could make an argument that that is the birthplace of civilization. Its influence is far and wide. Why would God have Abram leave Ur? Well, there are two reasons. First of all, because... Deuteronomy tells us it was full of false gods and their worship. God wanted to insulate and isolate Abram from his ancestors because that was his past. He was a polytheist. He worshipped many gods. And when God calls him, he calls him out of that environment. But why Canaan? Why go to that narrow, rather barren little strip of land in the Middle East it's because Israel is at the crossroads of three great continents it is the land bridge between Europe Asia and Africa on the topographical map you would discover that there is a great desert a barrenness to the east of Israel that really can't be crossed and even on the path I show here of Abram's journeys you see that he went up and came down through Israel that's because no one wanted to travel across the barren track of the desert that was a straight line between Ur and Canaan and so he went up and over that area and down and that's the way the traffic of the ancient world ran you see God placed Israel at the most strategic spot On the most important international highway of the ancient world, it was the land bridge between three great continents. And yet at the same time, and this is remarkable, the tiny land of Israel is divided horizontally, or vertically rather, from west to east into five distinct geographic regions. And in the middle of those regions is an area called the hill country, and that's where most of Israel lived and where they spent most of their existence. But that was not the easiest area to travel. And so the remarkable thing about it is that even though military and commercial traffic was constantly marching through her land, Israel was remarkably secluded in that central hill country where she lived most of her life. And so think about it. God places his people in the center of the ancient world, and yet at the same time, by the way he constructed the land of Israel, she found her daily life insulated from all of those influences. Remarkable providence in God's plan. So Abraham goes to Canaan, and he waits for the promised son. Eventually, as you know, the covenant is confirmed, not in Ishmael, the son born to To Hagar, but rather in Isaac. Isaac really only gets two chapters of Genesis, and essentially the important thing to know about Isaac is that he has twins, Esau and Jacob. Jacob struggles for the birthright. Remember, he was the second one out of the womb that day, and he struggles to gain the birthright and eventually does, but he didn't really need to do that because he was the one God had chosen. The wanderings of Jacob don't merit a lot of our time tonight, but he leaves because of fear. He fled from Esau. He went up to Haran, and he flew he not only to flee from Esau, but also to get a wife. You remember on the way, he had a vision of the stairway to heaven, and years later, he returned along that same route and was received by his brother Esau. Later, Jacob was renamed Israel. And he had 12 sons. Jacob's dozen sons. I'm the last of 10 children. I can't imagine 12 sons. Jacob's 11th son, as you'll see on the chart that I've put on the screen here, was named Joseph. Joseph was the key. Joseph was hated by his brothers. He ends up being sold into Egypt. And later, because of a drought, The family of Jacob and Israel goes to Egypt and there they end up in Egypt for 430 years. You understand God's providence. This 11th son of Jacob ends up in Egypt and you've read the story. It's a remarkable story of God's providence from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50. It really is at its heart a lesson in providence. God sends Joseph one step forward and two steps back until Joseph ends up exactly where God wants him ready to protect and preserve, to insulate, to incubate the family that he has chosen through which to put himself on display. So they end up a family of 70 headed down into Egypt because of the drought, because they couldn't get food where they were. And you'll notice that they go down into an area of the land of Egypt called Goshen. And there they settle. And Jacob's descendants end up in Egypt for 430 years and many of those years were hard years why did God do that why did God send his people that he chose through him to put himself on display into Egypt and into 400 years of bondage and slavery there's a remarkable verse in Genesis chapter 15 in fact look at it with me Genesis chapter 15 God's talking here to Abraham. We're still a couple hundred years before the slavery begins. And God says this in this amazing ceremony that he carries out with Abram. In Genesis chapter 15, notice verse 16. You're going to go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of of the Amorite, is not yet complete, is not yet full. If you go back to verse 13, God had said, your descendants are going to be strangers in a land that's not theirs. They'll be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. Why? Why? Here's the answer, verse 16, because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. You know what God was saying? God was saying the people that Joshua will kill and drive out 400 years after that captivity begins will be an act of my justice. But in my patience, I'm giving those terrible, polytheistic, child-sacrificing people more time. But the time will come. Derek Kidner writes, until it was right to invade, God's people must wait, even if it costs them four centuries of hardship. You know, there's an incredible lesson of God's providence in that, isn't there, even in our lives? We don't know what God is doing. We don't know what his plans are. God had something in mind for 600 years later when he talked to Abraham. So we don't know what God does, but we can trust him. So they find themselves in Egypt and Jacob and Joseph, his 11th son, die. But their multiplying clan remains in Egypt. They went down 70 and they just continued to multiply. Incubated there, from the influences of the Canaanites growing for God's time. That brings us to the end of Genesis and to Exodus. Now, when you come to Exodus, the book can be outlined like this. You have the Exodus itself, deliverance from Egypt in chapters 1 through 18. Chapter 12 is actually the Passover, and chapter 13 is when they leave Egypt. but that whole uh, the Exodus is encompassed in those 18 chapters. The second portion of exodus is the law the covenant at sinai chapters 19 to 34 followed by the tabernacle constructed and inhabited in chapters 35 to 40 when you look at the book of exodus its central theme is god's redeeming of a people for himself and entering into a covenant relationship with them god would use this nation to put himself on display, to serve as a channel of divine revelation, to give the Bible to the people of the world, and to be the people through whom the Savior would come. Understand, this is what God is doing with this nation. He's putting himself on display. He's serving as a channel of divine revelation, using them to serve as that, and to, as the people through whom the Savior would come. The basic spiritual message of Exodus is that Yahweh is a redeeming God. This is where we first, most powerfully in the Old Testament, get the lesson that God takes slaves and makes them his own, and that Yahweh keeps his covenant. He made a promise. He keeps his word. He promised Abram what he would do, and he does it. Some 600 years later, he steps in to execute his word just as he promised. Now it begins, Exodus does, with the bondage in Egypt. One chapter, portion of that chapter, gives us a picture of what went on. 400 years. There's very little revealed about those years, but the conditions of this period are reflected for us in Exodus 1. Understand that from 1876 B.C., when Jacob took his family into Egypt, until 1730, in other words, Roughly 100 and, 150 years. For about 150 years, the Hebrews lived prosperous and in ease. But in 1730 BC, a new dynasty began in Egypt. If you have any familiarity with Egyptian history, you know it was the Hyksos dynasty. And with it came a life of unbearable affliction and suffering for the people of God under a pharaoh whom is described as one who knew not Joseph. A new dynasty, a group of foreigners who had come into Egypt and gradually grown to an extent where they took over the leadership of Egypt. They displaced the Egyptians from the leadership of the land. And because there were fewer of them than there were Egyptians, there was always a concern that the Egyptians would mount and overthrow By bonding together, perhaps, with the Israelites, and so there was this desire to enslave the Israelites, to keep them suppressed so they could never be a threat to overthrow this new dynasty, the Hyksos dynasty. By the way, the making of bricks is much the same today as it was in the ancient world. You can see the picture there. Simple wooden troughs, mud-baked bricks, and that's what they were required to do. Into that situation, God heard Cry of his people. And the deliverance comes under a man named Moses. That deliverance is described beginning in Exodus 2 and running all the way through Deuteronomy, the end of that book, and Moses' death. Let's take a moment to walk through a little Egyptian history. We're talking about the 18th dynasty of Egypt. You can see that. There were several characters here. The one I want you to notice on the left is a woman, a woman by the name of Hapshepsut. Perhaps you saw her exhibit when it was down uh, in one of the local museums. Hapshepsut was the most powerful woman ever to live in Egypt. She adopted Moses. Her only child, a daughter, died before she was 10. She was the daughter of Thutmose I, whom you see on this chart. She married her half-brother, Thutmose II, and thus ascended to the throne as queen, as the queen of her half-brother, Thutmose II. When he died, her 10-year-old stepson, Thutmose III, temporarily took the throne. But then Hapshepsut stepped in. She proclaimed herself to be the supreme ruler of Egypt, and she sat in that role for 22 years Only two prior queens in Egypt's history had risen to supreme ruler. Only Hapshepsut posed and dressed like a man. She ruled with cruelty and oppression. She was a hard woman. She was succeeded by her stepson, who was now in his early 30s, Thutmose III, who hated her and tried to obliterate her from memory. Moses was adopted by this woman, the most powerful woman in Egyptian history. There's almost no information about his years from the age of five to the age of 40 years old. The most we have is in Acts chapter 7. Turn there with me. Acts chapter 7, in Stephen's sermon, he tells us a little bit, verse 21, after he'd been set outside, speaking of his rescue, uh, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. So we know that she cared for him as her own son. Remember her own child that died young. We know that he was raised in the palace at Thebes. We're told here that he received the best of educations. He was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians and that he was a man of power in both words and deeds. He was a powerful, influential man in how he spoke and in what he did. But Moses clearly makes a choice to associate with his own people. Verse 23, when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. Now, look at verse 25 because this is key to Moses' thinking. He supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him but they did not understand. Moses was apparently clinging to the promise of Genesis 15 that God would bring these people out of the land of Egypt and give them the promised land, and he understood, I think, in some sense that he was the one God would use, but the people didn't understand that. Nevertheless, Hebrews 11 tells us he chose to identify himself with the enslaved Hebrews, forfeiting all the advantages that he'd spent 40 years gaining. Hapshepsut undoubtedly warned him of the result of his choice, but he was not to be deterred. What did Moses really give up? Well, he definitely gave up an easy life of wealth and luxury and power and fame in any government position that he would have chosen. And very possibly, we can't be sure of this, but very possibly he gave up the opportunity to become Pharaoh of Egypt himself. If you look at the life of his mother and her history, you realize that there were some three separate opportunities when he might have been thrust to the throne. What was the driving motive behind Moses' decision? I love this. In Hebrews chapter 11, you know what we're told? He considered the reproach of the Messiah greater than the treasures of Egypt. Moses made a life choice, a catastrophic choice as many of the people around him would have seen because of his commitment to Israel's Messiah. He knew the Messiah was coming. So in light of what happened there, he flees Egypt and ends up spending the next 40 years of his life as a shepherd in Midian. He leaves Egypt, the point of the beginning of the red arrow there on the screen, and ends up in the barrenness of Midian. And, of course, you know what happens at the end of that period of time. He's at Sinai. Burning bush would have probably been down here in this region. He sees this bush that burns but that is not consumed, and God calls him to deliver the people. And I love this. When you look at God's call of Moses, listen to Moses' objections. He says, I have no authority. Who am I? I have no message. What shall I say? I have no credibility. They will not believe me. I have no eloquence. I am slow of speech and I am slow of tongue. But look at God's response to each of those. I have no authority. Who am I? Yahweh says, I will be with you. I have no message. What shall I say? Say that I am has sent you. Let my name be your message. I have no credibility. They will not believe me. Yahweh says, what is that in your hand? You'll have my power to substantiate your message. I have no eloquence. I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. And Yahweh says, you'll have my provision. I will be with your mouth and Aaron shall be your spokesman. Out of excuses. Return to Egypt. So Moses returns back from Midian to Egypt. And there we begin the encounter. Yahweh, the God of Israel versus the gods of Egypt. It's a remarkable story, really. When they return, when Moses and Aaron return to Egypt, the pharaoh they encounter, you'll see here on the chart again, is Amenhotep II, the last name at the bottom. Amenhotep II. He was the son of Thutmose III, Moses' nemesis. He's in the fourth year of his reign when they return, and he's about 22 years old. And here shows up Moses, 80 years old. And he says... Let my people go. Now, this pharaoh reigned from Memphis over here to the, the side of the land and not from Thebes. It's close, as you can see, to Goshen, and that helps the story unfold as the plagues are rained out on Egypt. The timeline of the plagues is about six months. When you think about the plagues, understand, best we can determine, they lasted for a period of about six months from late September early October through the latter part of March. What about these plagues? What were they? Well, there are three essential views. Some see them as pure myth, which of course we reject out of hand. Others say, no, they are greatly exaggerated accounts of perfectly understandable, albeit unusual natural phenomenon, which Moses used for an object lesson. The third view is that they were unique historical outpourings of the wrath of a sovereign God, who wished to show not only Egypt, but his own people, that he is the Lord of heaven and earth. They were miracles, and that's absolutely what the Bible underscores as true. Why did God send the plagues? Well, there really are two purposes. To provide a knowledge of the true God, God is going to irrefutably answer Pharaoh's question. Turn back to Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. Here was Pharaoh's question. He would live to regret it. Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? Let me remind you that people believed, as I said before, that the domain of the gods of a country extended as far as the borders of that country and measured their strength by its size, the victory of its armies, the decree of its prosperity, determined just how powerful and strong your gods were. And so God says, I will show you that I am Yahweh. I will show it to Israel, I will show it to Pharaoh, I will show it to all Egypt, and I will show it to all the world. God put himself on display as the powerful sovereign God of all creation and also to destroy the credibility of Egypt's false gods. The, the plagues were specifically designed to be directed at the gods of Egypt Each of the plagues designed to show Yahweh's superiority over all of Egypt's gods. God was essentially saying, I am the only true God, and everything you worship as God is under my control. 400 years later, when the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant, they're still remembering what Yahweh did in Egypt. Here's what God said. I love this quote. In Exodus chapter 9, this is what it was all about. Exodus chapter 9, verses 14 to 16. God says, for this time, I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. This next phrase sends shivers up my spine. God says, for if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. God says, listen, I'm here to teach you a lesson not to obliterate you. If that's what I wanted to do, I could have done it in a moment. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. God putting himself on display.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part two of his current series, An Aerial View of the Old Testament. Tom will bring you part three on our next broadcast. Join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at one eight seven seven five seven seven word And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed.